Thank you, Jim. Well, good morning. It is good to see your faces. It is, uh, I am convinced that there is no better place to be on the Lord's Day than with the Lord's people. And uh, it is just a joy to be with you. If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, we have Bibles in the back. If you do not have one or if your phone dies, uh, which, which does happen, uh, go ahead and grab one of those and uh, feel free to take that with you. That's our gift to you. Uh, if you do have your Bibles, turn in them to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is where we will be this morning as we continue in our series through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6. A few months ago, we had a book of the month. It was called Side by Side. And uh, in that book, the author Ed Welch makes this statement. He says, we all need help. That's simply part of being human. Now, the help we need goes beyond things like getting our house painted or finding a good mechanic. It's deeper than that. We need help for our souls. He says, but it's not easy to ask for help. We spend a lot of time hiding our neediness because we are afraid of what people will think. What do you think about that statement? Right? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you characterize yourself as a needy person or as self-sufficient? Well, the way that you answer that question can have a massive impact on the way that you pray. And a massive impact on the way that you pray. It's not uncommon to hear Christians say things like, well, I don't like to pray for myself. I feel selfish or I don't really have any needs, so I just want to pray for other people. Now, it's good to pray for other people, of course, but that way of thinking that I don't need to pray for myself is biblically wrong. And in some cases, may even be sinful. That way of thinking, let me say it again, is biblically wrong, and in some cases may be rooted in sin. On the other hand, sometimes we, we fall off on the other side of the fence, and we only pray for our needs, right? Our prayers are just about me, 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 me. And we don't pray for others. We, we ignore the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer that we saw last week that focus on God's glory, and we're just focused on ourselves. Two extremes, right? Well, this morning, we're going to be in the last three petitions of the Lord's Prayer. And as we look at these last three petitions, we'll see that the pronoun you that we saw in the first three petitions referring to God, has turned into our. In this half of the Lord's Prayer that we'll read in a moment, Jesus teaches us the ways in which we should pray for our own needs. The reality is that each one of you, all of us, have great needs for both body and soul. And if you never pray for them or, or focus exclusively on them, you're actually straying from the model of prayer that Jesus himself has given us. And I promise you, you can't do better than Jesus at prayer. Right? So let's read the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6. We'll start in verse 9 and read down to verse 15. Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. <clears throat> Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others and their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive 
your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for God's help as we come to his word today. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for these words. They are directly for us from you. Our Lord, we pray that you would help us as we hear the words of Christ, as we hear his teaching on prayer. Lord, that you would work in us, that you would work in our hearts, that you would reveal to us, Lord, if we are too focused on our own needs or not focused on them at all. Lord, ultimately, we pray that you would help us to become more dependent upon you. That is the heart of what Jesus teaches us today. So, Lord, change how we pray. May it be more honoring to you, more like the model given to us by our Savior. Help us not just to hear his words, but to do them. And, Lord, I I pray for your help, that you would help me uh, to proclaim your word in a way that's pleasing to you, that reflects what is in the text of Scripture. Help us all today, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the uh, title of this morning's message is very original, The Lord's Prayer Part 2. The Lord's Prayer Part 2. It took me a couple hours to come up with that this week. So, Three points that Jesus really gives us as we look at this second half of the Lord's Prayer from 11 down to 15. Three petitions for our own needs. First, we are taught to pray for our material needs to be met. Second, we're taught to pray for the forgiveness of our sin and help forgiving others. And finally, we are taught to pray for God's help in overcoming temptation. Those are the three main petitions here. Now, as we mentioned last week, these requests can be made verbatim from a pure heart, right? And that's honoring to the Lord. But what Jesus is doing here really is giving us a pattern for prayer. These are the kinds of things, the topics that our prayers should include and should follow. So Jesus isn't saying you can only pray these words on the page. But rather, he's saying, pray along these lines. Pray for these things, depending on your situation. So let's start at that first petition, verse 11. Pray for your material needs to be met. Give us this day our daily bread. Here, Jesus teaches his disciples to ask God to give them their daily bread. This is a figurative way of saying essential material needs. right? Essential material needs. Here Jesus is teaching his disciples, he's teaching us to ask God to meet the needs we have for this life, the physical necessities of living in this world. God makes many promises in the Bible to meet the needs of his people, especially when they're walking rightly before him. Psalm 37, 25 says, I have been young and am now old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. In fact, later on in Matthew 6, Jesus teaches something very similar. Just look down to verse 25. Uh, Jesus is telling his disciples here, don't be anxious about your life, what you eat or what you drink, about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So in other words, notice that there's those material needs, but life, of course, is more than that. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? He goes on to compare Uh, us to really the flowers of the fields. And then in verse 30, he says this, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added 
to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Right? God promises clearly to provide for the needs of his people. That doesn't mean Christians will not have hard times. It doesn't mean that Christians may at some times suffer. Right? We need to differentiate between needs and wants. Ultimately, God is the one who determines what we need. Right? And we have our wants. Needs are things that are essential to survival. Paul summarizes this well when he says in 1 Timothy 6, 8, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Right? Food, clothing, a place to live, maybe uh, vital medicine, right? These are necessities for us. But our wants are in a different category, right? They're things we desire for various reasons. You may want a new car. You may want a new job. You may want to move somewhere you enjoy better and the house prices are a little lower, right? These are wants. Your life does not depend on them, and God does not promise to give them to you, right? God does not, thankfully, give us everything we want, right? This is not what Jesus has in mind when he says, give us this day our daily bread. And the structure of this petition actually helps us get to the root of what Jesus is getting at. And notice we are to ask God this day for our daily bread. If we were to translate the Greek a little more literally, we would read, give us today our bread for tomorrow. Give us today our bread for tomorrow. In other words, Jesus is teaching us to ask God expectantly to meet our needs one day at a time, so to speak. Right? One day at a time. This isn't illustrating that we need to punch a prayer card to get food for the day, right? That God gives us our rations once we ask him. Really, the heart of it is dependence on God for our needs. Day to day. As Jesus says, think about your needs for today. Don't be anxious about what you may or may not have tomorrow, right? God does not promise to give us a storehouse, but he does promise to give us daily bread. We have no guarantee of tomorrow, and so we depend on God one day at a time, right? Now, sometimes we view this petition as something we don't really need to think about daily, right? We don't, I I don't know about you, but there's days where I don't ask God, please give me what I need for this day. I just go about my business and just go through life. And no doubt we can be thankful still, right? Even if we don't ask God of, of this very petition, when he grants it, we can be thankful. But that doesn't mean that we can cease to ask God to continue to provide for us. Even when he meets our needs, we're taught to continue to ask him to do that. And by doing this, we're acknowledging that everything we have comes from God's hand. Right? When we're thankful for what God's, God provides, that's good. That's good, we should be. But when we have asked him to provide for us and we see him do it, how much more thankful are we and how much more conscious are we on the fact that he is the one who's given it to us? Every bite, every dollar, every breath, every night's sleep. In everything, we are dependent upon God. We need him to provide for us. So regardless of how much God's provided for you today, right? Jesus still instructs us, to ask God to continue to provide for tomorrow. Not out of doubting, but out of dependence. There's a big difference between the two. As we've seen in verse 8 a couple weeks ago, God already knows our needs before we ask Him. He promises to provide them. This petition is not for God's sake. God doesn't need the reminder, right? Uh, God does not forget to go grocery shopping. This is for our sake, to remind us to provide, or to ask God to provide for us. 
This petition is for us to remember who we are really dependent on. Now, this doesn't mean that we take prayer as an excuse not to work, right? I prayed for daily bread, now I just get to sit back in the lazy chair. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm retiring early. No, right? As Christians, we should be hard workers because it's often through our work that God provides for us. God works through means. He works through means. And working in this world is how God often provides our daily bread. Other times, God does provide for our needs from the most unexpected places. I'm sure you can think of a time in your life where you had a need, nobody else knew about it, and just out of the blue, that need was met in a way that only God could do. Have you had that experience before? And as God meets our needs, He's glorified. He's glorified. All that we have comes from God, and this petition helps us to recognize that. The first three petitions are all about God's glory, but these second three, even as they deal with our needs, Remind us to glorify God as He meets those needs. So brothers and sisters, do you ask God to meet your needs daily in prayer? Do you depend on Him in prayer to meet your needs day by day? And when you have a perceived need, you try in your own strength, your own self-sufficiency, you just forget about prayer and try to, try to fix things, right? Try to hustle a little bit more. You can't take God's place as provider. And this raises another question that we have to ask ourselves sometimes. Am I content with what God has given me? Am I content with how he has met what he's determined to be my need? Sometimes we ask God for things and God answers in a way that we don't like, we don't expect. We say, but no God, I need a little bit more. Are you content with what you've been given by God? Are you tempted at times to be envious of what your neighbor has? Right? We're taught to ask God for daily bread, not a daily buffet. Are you content with God's provision for you? Of course, material needs are not our only needs. As Jesus goes on, he mentions two other kinds of needs that we have that should prompt us, according to this model of prayer, to ask for God's help with. Needs regarding our souls, our relationships. The second petition in verse 12, to pray for your sins to be forgiven. Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgiveness has fallen on hard times in our culture today. The phenomenon of, of cancel culture has resulted in the public blacklisting of individuals for various reasons, great and small, right and wrong. If you said something wrong or offensive decades ago, those things may come up and haunt you. They may cost you your job. You may be blasted by the media. Where's the forgiveness? Even for Christians, forgiveness is sometimes nothing more than a cliche that we know we're supposed to do, but in the back of our mind, we're looking for reasons to not have to do it. We'd much rather just cut people out of our lives than forgive them. We would much rather just pretend we haven't done anything wrong rather than ask for the forgiveness of others. But in this petition of the Lord's Prayer that we see here, we find ourselves confronted with another need, and that is the need to be forgiven and the need to forgive others. The need to be forgiven and the need to forgive others. But you can't talk about forgiveness without dealing with the reality that forgiveness points us to, and that is the reality of sin. It's the reality of sin. If we lived in a sinless world, there would be no need for forgiveness. 
But deep down, as we confessed this morning, all people are aware, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, but everybody's conscience testifies to the fact that each person, you and me, have broken God's holy law and are under the punishment that that brings. Romans 1.32 says uh, of, of humanity in general, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things, sin, deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's the natural course of humanity. Now, when a person becomes a Christian, that relationship to sin changes. It's no longer a delight. It's no longer a master. It becomes offensive and an enemy. But nonetheless, you and I still struggle with the sin that remains in us. None of us are perfect, right? Not until Christ returns. In reality, we sin daily. You ever been impatient before? You ever been frustrated, opinionated, selfish, right? There's these minor sins that are pretty acceptable. Grumbling, complaining, right? We sin constantly. God is the divine lawgiver. And because of that, he is the only one who can forgive sins. That's why David says in Psalm 51, against you, O Lord, and you alone have I sinned. Because when we sin, we are breaking God's law. And this reveals the need that we have, the need for God to forgive our sins. The Bible says nothing about forgiving yourself, right? You don't need to forgive yourself. You haven't uh, broken your own rules, right? We need forgiveness from God. But there's a point of controversy here, right? Why do Christians need to pray this part of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts? Right? We agree as Christians that all people have sin which needs to be forgiven. That's not something we question. And really, our, our understanding of this need for forgiveness is the whole reason we call out to God to forgive us, responding to the gospel, that the penalty of our sins has been paid. Right? As Paul says in Colossians 2, that Jesus has set aside our debt, canceling it, and nailing it to the cross. So the, the Bible is clear that both past, past, present, and future sins of believers have been forgiven. And that God's wrath is satisfied. So why do we need to pray this part of the Lord's Prayer? Why do we need to ask God for forgiveness if we have already received it? Well, we need to remember the first line of the prayer. What is it? Our Father. Our Father. It's not our judge. It's not our prosecutor. It's our Father. When we ask for the forgiveness of sins from God, we are not asking to be resaved we are simply recognizing that when we sin, we need to seek the forgiveness of God, who is our Father, because He gives this forgiveness freely to His children. We're asking for forgiveness not in the legal sense of being justified, but in the context of our relationship with God. Okay, don't think courtroom, think relationship. Asking forgiveness is an important part of any relationship whether that's with your kids, your spouse, your coworker, when you and I sin, that relationship is damaged. When we sin against another person, when we do something wrong, or when somebody sins against us, that relationship is fractured. It's damaged. Doesn't mean it's not repairable, but it means that our sin affects relationships. And what is the biblical pattern that we should follow? Well, it is to confess and ask for forgiveness. And that is what heals those relationships. Well, in the same way, when we sin against God, who is our Father, we are called to 
seek forgiveness from Him. Not so that our sins aren't held against us anymore, but because we love God, we have a relationship with Him, and we know we've done wrong against Him. Our relationship with God requires us to seek His forgiveness when we sin, just like any other relationship. Now, He's not going to withhold it from us, as people may do, but He grants it freely. So what does this require of us? Right? If we're called to ask God for forgiveness, uh, five things this requires from us, okay? This five things I know sounds like a lot, but, but it'll go quick. It'll go quick. So first, this requires us to be conscious and sober-minded of our own thoughts, actions, and words. All right, you may just cruise through life not thinking about whether or not you're honoring God in what you think, do, and feel. But the reality is that there's a lot going on there that may not be pleasing to the Lord. As 1 John 1, 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But we need God's help to do this, right? We can't know ourselves. We can't know our hearts. We can't really understand ourselves and what's going on inside unless God helps us. That's why David prays, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there's any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139. That's a good prayer to pray. Lord, help me to know myself, my thoughts, my heart. Am I honoring you? We have to be somewhat introspective in that regard. Second, it requires us that when we discover we've sinned against God in our thoughts, our actions, our words, we must be quick to confess that sin to Him. That means we call the sin what it is and acknowledge the sinfulness of our actions. That doesn't mean we say to Him, Lord, I blew it. Lord, I messed up. Uh, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm such a loser. But Lord, forgive me for my anger in the way I talk to my children. Lord, forgive me for my pride in the way I thought about my coworker. Lord, forgive me for my selfishness in putting my needs before my family's. Name the sin specifically and biblically as you confess to Him. Third, asking for forgiveness from God requires us to believe the gospel. It requires us to believe the gospel. And asking for forgiveness we must believe that God's declaration that we've been forgiven and made righteous because of what Jesus has done is true. This doesn't mean we don't mourn over sin. We should do that. But it does mean we need to recognize that sin has truly been forgiven. We must believe God on that point. Because of what Christ has done, we have the guarantee of forgiveness. So we should be quick to fight any doubt that God will forgive our sins. And in fact, that he's already done so in Christ. Fourth, asking for forgiveness also requires us to repent, to seek God's help in turning from sin and walking in righteousness. Uh, to pray this petition, forgive us our debts without any intention or desire of repentance and change is hypocritical and abuses God's grace, right? That's like saying the right thing to get out of the principal's office. And that is not, uh, it's not going to fly with the God who knows all things. Now, sometimes we struggle with that desire to change. And there too, we must ask for God's help. And the final thing that this petition requires us to do is right there in the next part of the verse, as we also have forgiven our debtors, it requires that we forgive others. We're asking God to forgive us. It requires we forgive others. This is brought out more by what Jesus says in 14 and 15, that if we forgive others, God will forgive us. And if we don't, then God will not. Now, what's Jesus saying there? That's kind of a, a concerning statement, potentially, right? What is Jesus getting at there? It seems like he's saying God's forgiveness is contingent on our actions. 
But we know from the rest of Scripture this is not quite what Jesus is saying. He isn't saying God withholds forgiveness unless we forgive others, but really that a forgiven heart must forgive others. This is what the gospel demands of us. One commentator summarizes Jesus' teaching this way. It's not that the act of forgiving merits an eternal reward, but rather is evidence that the grace of God is at work in the forgiving person and that the same grace will bring him forgiveness in due course. If you are an unforgiving person, have you ever tasted the grace of God's forgiveness in Christ? That's the question that Jesus' words pose for us here. Because if you understand the gospel, if you understand what God has done for you in Christ, when you understand that your sin against God cannot even be measured, and another person's sin against you is that big in comparison, and yet God has forgiven you, if you understand the gospel, the natural outcome must be that you forgive others. The gospel is the foundation of our ability to forgive people from the heart. Paul says this in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let me read that again. This is a verse to memorize, and it will help your relationships inestimably. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4.32, a good one to write down if you haven't already. How can we who are imperfect not forgive earthly offenses against us when God who is perfect has forgiven us of so much, an infinite debt? The Heidelberg Catechism says that this forgiving others is evidence of God's grace in us, that it is our firm resolution from the heart to forgive our neighbor. Now, it doesn't mean we're always able to forgive people immediately and just move on, right? That's not reality. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. Sometimes we need to pray for God's help in forgiving other people. Lord, help me to forgive that person. I'm having a hard time. That's a good prayer to pray because what it shows is that I know what you would have me do, Lord. I want to do it. I need your help. That's a good prayer to pray. There's a difference between working through forgiveness and being unforgiving, right? So as we confess and seek forgiveness for our sins, and as we, by God's help, forgive other people, well, we don't want to just look to the past. After all, what happens when you encounter the same temptation to sin tomorrow or in 10 minutes, right, after you've prayed? We need God's help for the future, for tomorrow, right? And that's where the final petition of the Lord's Prayer takes us as we ask for God's help to resist temptation. Verse 13, pray for help to overcome temptation and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Military strategists use the term fog of war to describe the many ways that combatants face uncertainty on the battlefield. You may not know how much firepower your enemy has compared to yours. You may not know the tactics they're going to utilize. There's uncertainty about what your opponent will do. And as Christians, we face a similar fog of war. Right? What do we know? We know we have an enemy right? outside of our own sinful natures. We know we have an enemy named Satan. And we know that his ultimate goal 
is what 1 Peter 5.8 says. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We know Satan's goal is to destroy God's people. But we don't necessarily know all the ways and the times and the tactics he may use to do this. Fortunately, we have a general who knows all things. There is no fog of war to God. And Jesus instructs us to seek God's help in this last petition. Uh, There's two parts here. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Two petitions, really, that make up one request. And there's a little bit of debate here about what Jesus is actually saying. That word there, temptation, in the Greek is is perazzo. We don't like to talk about a lot of Greek stuff because you and I don't speak Greek, but it's important here. Perazzo is a word that can refer to temptation, being enticed to sin, or testing as in the testing of our faith. Two different senses, two different connotations. There's a big difference in the implications of those meanings. So Jesus could be saying, God, please don't lead us into suffering where we'll be tested. Or he could be saying, lead us not into temptation where we may be enticed to sin. What does Jesus mean here? Well, the word perazzo is is morally neutral. Right? It really just refers to a situation in which pressure is put on a person from the outside to produce an outcome. That's what it means. But when we think about who is applying this pressure to us, well, that's when that moral element's introduced. Here's what I mean. If God is the one perazzoing us, we should think about that as testing which should produce a positive result. James 1, 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God tests our faith for the positive outcome of spiritual growth. That's a good thing, though not easy. But Satan does not want the same outcome, does he? He does not want us to love the Lord more and grow in steadfastness. God does. Now, if Satan is the one applying the pressure to us, if he is the one perazzoing us, we could say, we would understand it to mean temptation. Because Satan's goal is the opposite of God. He wants us to sin and fall from Christ. We see that in the the desert, right, where Jesus is tempted. Satan comes to him to try to cause Jesus to sin. And Jesus was without sin, and this is an external temptation, right? But Satan's goal was clear. He's trying to get Jesus to stumble. So when we keep that in mind, especially when we see in verse 13, evil, better translated as deliver us from the evil one, we are to pray for rescue from Satan. And what is Satan's business? It is temptation, right? There seems to be a direct connection between avoiding temptation and the evil one. So that's, I think, how we should understand this temptation to sin. Now, it's important to remember God does not tempt us. Right? James also reminds us, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So why would Jesus tell us to pray for this, to ask God not to lead us into temptation when God's not even the one who tempts us to begin with? Well, this is figurative language. When we pray this, we're not asking God to not do something we're afraid he'll do, lead us into temptation. We're really asking him to help us overcome temptation, 
Thomas Watson words it this way, the meaning is that God would not suffer us to be overcome by temptation, that we may not be given up to the power of temptation and drawn into sin. God knows every pitfall, every snare, every mine on the field, and He gives us what we need to resist and overcome temptation. We don't know when the enemy may strike with fiery darts and tempt us, and so we must seek God's help in maintaining our faithfulness to Him and His Word when those moments come. Right? It's not wrong to pray that God would spare us from temptation altogether. Like, Lord, please help me not even to be tempted today. That's a good thing to pray. Satan is smarter than us. He is stronger than us. He is evil to the core. And that is why Jesus emphasizes that we need to seek God's help in escaping Satan's temptation. We're not, we're not the uh, valiant soldiers at the front of the charge. That's Jesus' job, right? That's not our place. We're asking God to deliver us, asking for him to help us. Now, it is important to note that at times God does allow Satan to tempt us in order to test our faith. This is kind of where these two meanings of this word merge. Here's what I mean. On Satan's level, he's trying to tempt us to sin. But God, who is sovereign over all things, even Satan's activities, uses Satan's temptation as a test for us as a good outcome. Just remember Job. Perfect illustration of this, right? Satan comes to God and says, God, I can make Job curse your name. I can make him sin. And God says, okay, go ahead and try. God's not the tempter. He's allowing Satan to tempt Job. But by the end of the book, no cursing had occurred. Job ends up humbled and sanctified because of the test that God was sovereignly overseeing, using Satan's temptation as the tool. Does that make sense? So, brothers and sisters, when we are tempted, when we find ourselves under spiritual attack, God is not blind to that. In fact, he is sovereign over it. And he will not give us a temptation that we cannot overcome. He will not give us a temptation where there is not an escape from it. 1 Corinthians 10 Verse 30, even though Satan is the primary player in view of this petition, we also face temptation from the inside, don't we? James reminds us, James chapter 1, 14 through 15, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We uh, are often too quick to attribute to Satan things that are the result of our own sinful hearts. Our old nature, which includes our heart, our mind, our flesh, fights against our soul. 1 Peter 2.11 describes it as waging war. Right? The passions of our flesh wage war against our soul. So we face temptation to sin from within and from without, and we cannot overcome either but by God's grace and help. You are needy in your fight against sin. You don't have the resources by yourself. You just don't. If you're not actively fighting sin and thinking about the dangers you face, you've already lost. You're already a prisoner of war. We need God's help from beginning to end, and our prayers should be heavily concerned with our own sanctification and fight against sin. That should be a major point that we ask for God's help with daily, regularly, hourly. We're not praying to God about help with our sin. 
and we don't realize how sinful we are or how often we're tempted. If you're not praying for God's help in fighting sin, who are you depending on? Yourself. How's that going? Right? Now, as we depend on God for our daily bread and for the forgiveness of sin, we depend on Him for the fight against sin and temptation. And just like our dependence on God for daily bread doesn't excuse us from working, right? Dependence on God in fighting sin doesn't excuse us from fighting sin. We're all going to face temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Lord, help me find the way of escape. Help me Take the way of escape. Now, people misunderstand this verse all the time and they think it means God won't give you more than you can handle. That's not what it means. That is not what Paul is saying at all. God gives us more than we can handle all the time to show us that we need to depend on Him. No, what Paul is saying in this verse, 1 Corinthians 10 13, is that God will never allow a temptation in our lives that is A, too strong for us, and B, inescapable. He will not do that. So we can't use that as an excuse, but instead we should pray, lead us not into temptation. So Think, what are the areas of sin that you're struggling with now? If you don't know, that's a concern. That should concern you because it means you're not paying attention to what's going on in here and here. It means you're not confessing sin to the Lord either. Once you you get into a habit of confessing sin, you become much more aware of just how often you do sin. This final petition of the Lord's Prayer is a vital one, right? We, We naturally ask God to meet our needs or the needs of others. We sometimes pray for forgiveness, but right, how often do we pray for God's help in temptation? Paul's words for us are are good in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Asking for God's help in avoiding temptation, confessing our sins, growing in dependence on the Lord for our needs, our sanctification, that should be a key part of our prayer life. That's 50% of the Lord's prayer. 50% of the Lord's prayer is asking for God's help for our needs. That's significant, isn't it? That's significant. So do you pray like Jesus describes in the Lord's Prayer? Are these topics found in your prayer? Consider what Jesus is giving us here. We hear in conversation all the time, man, I just wish my prayer life was better. Sometimes I don't know what to pray for. Right? Prayer is hard and I, I, I lose track of what I'm praying for. Jesus gives you the solution to those problems right here in the Lord's Prayer. This divinely inspired pattern for prayer. You can't do better than this as a a model, a template for prayer. Right? We can't undervalue this. Just because some have turned it into a traditional recitation that has become meaningless in, in their own minds, right? Does not mean that we should not deeply value the resource Jesus is giving us here. If you were to take the Lord's Prayer and for a week straight use it as the model, praying along these lines, 
beginning your prayers with worshiping God, praying for His kingdom to, to come in the various ways that come to mind, for His will to be done in situations that you may be facing. If you were to pray for God to meet your daily needs, to forgive your sins, and to help you that day not to fall into temptation, you would leave that time of prayer satisfied in your soul. You would leave that time of prayer having prayed for the things that God has said are truly necessary and important for you to pray for. And prayer would, over time, become delightful instead of a duty. So don't undervalue the Lord's Prayer, brothers and sisters. And as we pray these things, we have really an amazing opportunity to watch God answer our prayer, which encourages us to pray more. You know, we, we pray for things and we don't know how God's going to answer them, right? The Lord's Prayer gives you petitions that God guarantees to answer. Right? If you want yeses to all of your prayers, you can't go wrong with the Lord's Prayer. God's not going to say, no, I'm not going to have my will done today. You know what? No, I'm not going to give you your daily bread. He promises these things. These are good things that God promises to answer. Right? Do you feel anxious? Do you worry about tomorrow? Are you bitter about another person's actions or words? Do you struggle with temptation to sin? Then pray. Pray. And use the model Jesus has given you. To quote Charles Spurgeon, Christian, look up then and rejoice. There is always an open ear if you have an open mouth. There is always a ready hand if you have a ready heart. So let us be encouraged to pray and to follow the pattern that our Savior, our teacher, has given us in the Lord's Prayer. Let us be eager to pray for the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of the Lord's Prayer. Because, Lord, in truth, we don't always know what to pray for. We're conflicted in our hearts. We're distracted in our minds. We're, uh, Lord, worried that we're praying for things that may not be good. We become obsessed with how you might answer our prayers. But what a gift you've given us in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus. We thank you for it. Would you help us to use the Lord's Prayer to guide our own prayers, that we might pray in a way that is honoring to you, a way that reflects your will? Lord, helping us to pray along the things that are pleasing to you. Lord, you delight to hear these requests from your children because, Lord, we know it is your will to answer them yes. So, Father, help us to pray for your glory and help us, Lord, to acknowledge our needs before you. And that as we see you meet those needs, that, Lord, our response is to glorify your name and to give thanks. Help us to be a prayerful people. Fashion us, Lord, to be like our Savior in that regard. And we pray this in his name. Amen.